Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 119 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Chinese Summer Olympics episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out... That in the People's Republic of China, there is a governmental program that targets sports that China has not traditionally excelled at in the Summer Olympics. And, they, and they're trying to increase their medal counts, right? Uh, and they call it Project 119. And um, coming from the Siki, I guess that's good. My name is Matt, of course. And uh, coming to us from his own personal Petri dish at the Tokyo Telecommunications Laboratory, which, 12 years later, was known as Sony, is... A very sad Tim. Why are you sad, sir? Well, Matthew, it's not every day when you find out that something you love and cherish and enjoy so much killed three people. Plant Bukaki in Houston? There was that. But in fact, Plant Bukaki got into Blue Bell ice cream in Brenham, Texas, and killed three people in Kansas. Oh my god, I heard about that. I uh, know! Yeah, in California, wasn't it? No, Kansas. The Kansas, oh, it was in the hospital ice cream or something, hospital ice cream treat. Yeah, it, the I guess Kansas is the Midwestern California. As you can tell, I am not feeling 100%. I'm sorry that I got the K sound of California mixed up with the K sound of Kansas. Yes, we are not blame Kansas it on the bukkake. Yes, plant bukkake, to be specific. And for those of you who don't know what plant bukkake is, some people would call it um, pollen. Yes, that's right. Dried plant cum streaming through the air and into your noses and into your throats. And now I am sick. So, thanks, pollen. <laughs> You're welcome, Matthew. <laughs> if if Pollen had a voice, what would it sound like? Like if you had to choose an actor to play the voice of Pollen, it would have to. I would. I would. I would say Christopher Walken would be great. Actually, no. Since we're trying to be sexy, since we're relating this to sex, I'm thinking Antonio Banderas would be really good. With, you know, because he's talking about the sexiness of the pollen and how the oral sex from the bees and the butterflies and stuff, right? Because that's what they're doing. They're sucking nectar out of flowers while they're also gathering the pollen. So that's kind of like the oral sex version of the insect and plant world, I suppose. I think I need help. All right, I'm going to stop there. How, how was your week, sir? Good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it all came to an end once I found out about Bluebell. Uh, it apparently happened three days ago, too. And I found out about it the day, the day after I found, I, I came across an ice cream shop, like, not too far away from where I live here in Hollywood, which serves Bluebell ice cream by the scoop, like, ten different flavors. Well, you were safe there. It was literally just that one uh, line of the hospital treats. It's like some kind of, I don't know, like a popsicle or some, you know, whatever. But uh, what if like they a... close the shop down? Like, what if what if people don't get 
the ice cream anymore. I, I, to be fair, I guess it wasn't necessarily like the popular carton uh, ice cream. It was from dailymail.co.uk. Listeria bacteria were found in samples of bluebell chocolate chip country cookies, Great Divide bars, Sour Pop green apple bars, cotton candy bars, scoops, vanilla stick slices, almond bars, and no sugar added moo bars. Well, I don't care too much about the Sour Pop green apple bars and cotton candy bars. Do kids still eat that stuff i mean that used to be popular when i was a kid uh was it popular when you were a kid like the sour pop green popsicle ice cream shit that stuff like the 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 weird popsicle things or what have you those would just come from the ice cream truck yeah um we would started if we if we're going for bluebell ice cream we're just getting the regular half gallon of whatever we're gonna get or you know if we're doing something on the quick then maybe a pint or something like that. So, and since none of that, none of that was affected by this, uh, you know, feel free to dig into your bluebell, bluebell homemade ice cream, plant bukkake free. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> is that going to be your Ben and Jerry's flavor? <laughs> There's going to be an SLS <laughs> cast flavor, but then your yeah. hey, we have our own SLS cast, SLS Las Vegas thing with the Vegas Metro. That was pretty badass. Yeah, I think that they, uh, well, there's the SLS Hotel in Vegas. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. Okay, we own a hotel now? We own a hotel. outstanding. And I think that's why we got some, we got like 88 hits on our last episode, was because I'm sure some, some of the suits or some of the legal team got that hashtag, and they're like, oh shit, somebody's taking our brand. Well, I no, can be, they I stole can, I'm our pretty brand. rest assured no one's going to confuse this brand with that one. <laughs> <laughs> what, we don't scream elegance and poker? We definitely do not scream four-star entertainment anything or five-star anything. <sighs> At any rate. So do you have some news of the weird? Bukaki I do. I breath? do. I do. My, my news of the weird comes from uh, cbsnews.com. Uh, via the AP, Kevin Bacon and eggs. Actor stars in egg industry campaign, and there's a little you know title card here. It's a picture from a, I guess a screen cap from a commercial where it says, "Wake up to the strength to endure a lifetime of bacon jokes." Because apparently the egg industry is ordering up a side of Kevin Bacon. The American Egg Board says it plans to launch a print and online ad campaign featuring the Footloose actor and puns using his last name. The group says it's the first time it's using a Hollywood celebrity in a major marketing push. The campaign comes at a promising time for the egg industry, when the nation's protein craze, uh, helping fuel sales after decades of eggs being viewed as cholesterol bombs. Uh, The online spots... Feature a woman making scrambled eggs for breakfast when bacon appears, lying suggestively on the counter behind her. At one point, she leans in to sniff the actor and says she loves the smell of bacon when her husband walks in. Oh my god, I want to see these commercials so bad. (laughs) Maybe it's just because I'm completely out of my mind at the moment. But this just screams awesome. (sighs) What do you think, Tim? Would you like some Kevin Bacon and eggs? 
That does sound awfully good right now. I mean, I mean, at this point, you would literally everybody because everybody knows an egg and has had eggs. You are now all one degree away from Kevin Bacon. That's right. They're just not going to stop all hour long. We're just going to keep this going. <laughs> <laughs> I might punch my TV if I see that in the commercial. <laughs> exactly what you just said. <laughs> yeah. I hope that doesn't happen at any rate. So that was my news of the weird. Here we go, folks. It is the news. <laughs> I've got a block of Disney news that I'm going to start with here. And uh, it's all sorts of announcements. um, And that's pretty much it. These are just announcements of things that are happening with the Disney brand and some movie announcements and what have you. So first up, from Inquisitor.com. Oh my goodness. Courtesy of David Joseph. Disney bans PG-13 smoking. Including any Marvel films it produces. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, in a day and age when smoking, not ISIS, is the problem. It should come as no surprise that smoking bans are becoming more prevalent. The Inquisitor reported in January that a Colorado town was considering an all-out ban throughout the town. For those that complained about NBC's Constantine not having smoking in it, you might not want to see any chain-smoking Marvel characters get brought to the screen through Disney Studios. According to The Wrap, Disney CEO Bob Iger states that Disney is, quote, committed to being an upstanding corporate member of society and a positive influence on children, end quote. Like it or not... That is Mr. Iger's belief, and all films under the Disney banner will follow it. A shareholders meeting on Thursday was the location for this announcement. For those unaware, one of the sets of films that fall under the massive umbrella is Marvel Films. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Wolverine put down that stogie. (laughs) I don't know why I'm just now thinking of... You know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, whatever. Nick Fury and J. Jonah Jameson, stop, no more. Gambit, Kingpin, and the Punisher, cut that out. Disney has declared a smoking ban on all of them. In fact, the new rule will affect all of them and every future flick. Quote, we are extending our policy to prohibit smoking in movies across the board. Marvel, Lucas, Pixar, and Disney films, end quote. Now... They do say that historical smoking will be exempt. So, for example, a uh, good old Abe Lincoln smoked. So if they do a movie featuring Abe Lincoln, there would be the possibility of him having a pipe or something. So in the 60s and 70s, nobody smoked a lot of weed? Well, I don't think they've ever been worried about that. But (sighs) But they might. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And following that announcement, of course, from Variety.com, courtesy of Mark Grazer. Disney announces Frozen 2. Enough said. You knew it was coming. Now it's official. All right. There you go. Um, in other princessy type news from Variety.com, courtesy of Seth Kelly, Josh Gad to play LeFou in live action Beauty and the Beast. Yes, in case you can't get enough of the lovable huggable Frozen feverfied snowman. Um, yeah. 
he's now going to be seen in live action. He won't look like the cuddly little snowman. He will look like LeFou. Yeah, I'm I'm just as excited as you are. Actually, I mean, I like Josh Gad. I mean, I understand that um, he is a bit of a one-trick pony. And yet, I don't know. I, I like him anyway. So I hope it works out. We'll see how that goes. Uh, next up from epicstream.com, we're switching, we're still in the Disney vein, but now we're closing it out here with some, uh, Star Wars news. Courtesy of Jake Viper, Disney to release original unaltered cut of Star Wars trilogy on Blu-ray. Now I know that we had mentioned this at, uh, I, I'd heard about it on Midnight Movie Nights, mm, eight months ago? Maybe it was definitely a while back, and I was very excited about it. And then, of course, it turned out they thought it, uh, it turned out to not be true, or whatever. However, it looks like Disney has finally gotten everything in gear. Uh, Star Wars fans have been hoping for Disney slash Lucasfilm to release the unaltered original cut of the first Star Wars trilogy, and according to sources from comicbook.com, that's what they're planning to do. The site reports that Disney is planning to release the original cut of the Star Wars trilogy on Blu-ray, the goal of the project that has reportedly been underway for a long time, is to release A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi in their complete and original form without the redone special edition SFX. The plan was to release the trilogy on Blu-ray before Star Wars The Force Awakens comes out on December 18th. The sources reported that Disney doesn't have the exact date due to the challenges they encountered. Uh, very excited about that. And uh, looks like we may finally get to see it. Uh, and, and uh, for example, one of the challenges that they have is that they are pulling literally from like single mastered copies off of a special edition laser disc to get like a new hope in its unaltered form. So, I mean, these are things that they're like really technically difficult and then they're having to clean all that stuff up. So it's very, I mean, it's a time consuming process. So, but I'm excited nonetheless. And last but not least from star Wars.com. That's right, from the horse's mouth itself, as it were. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on. Did you say that they're not using, like, a master master there is, film? There is no master for A New Hope. And so they're using Laserdisc? Yeah. Really? The only, the only copy known, um, and, and this, um, this is my recollect, my drug-fueled recollection from People versus George Lucas, uh, as well as having read some other forums and what have you in the past. My understanding is is that George Lucas um, took the original masters and I, I destroyed them, hit them, changed them, something so that they, so that his vision would be what the vision was. Um, the only unknown untouched digital format for like a new hope um is on a special edition uh, original laser disc release where they had a particular cut of a new hope that that was an available special feature and that's the kind of stuff they're having to work from hmm so yeah people said that laser disc <laughs> Would never would come never into play. To anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It might be the, the single-handed savior Wars. of Star Wars, the Star Wars trilogy. Wow, that's that's interesting. 
So yeah, so last but not least here, Rogue One is the first Star Wars standalone film Rian Johnson to write and direct Star Wars Episode Eight. Rogue One, ladies and gentlemen, is the title for the first film in a unique series of big screen adventures that explores the characters and events beyond the core Star Wars saga. Rogue One will be directed by Gareth Edwards of Monsters and Godzilla and written by Oscar nominee Chris Weitz of Cinderella about a boy and ants. The first actress cast is Felicity Jones, who garnered an Academy Award nomination and critical acclaim for her performance in The Theory of Everything. The idea for the story of Rogue One came from John Knoll, an Academy Award-winning visual effects supervisor and chief creative officer at Industrial Light and Magic. He will executive produce along with Simon Emanuel of The Dark Knight Rises and Fast and Furious 6, and Jason McGatlin of Tintin and War of the Worlds. Kathleen Kennedy and Tony Toe of Band of Brothers and the Pacific are on board to produce Produce and John Swartz of Star Wars The Force Awakens will co-produce. The film starts shooting this summer in London and is due for release on December 16th, 2016. In addition, Iger confirmed that Ryan, uh, Ryan Johnson, or Ryan Johnson, will write and direct Star Wars Episode Eight. The film, which continues the saga after the events of Star Wars The Force Awakens, is set for release on May 26th, 2017, 40 years and a day after the release of Star Wars A New Hope in 1977. Johnson is widely considered one of cinema's most gifted young filmmakers, having directed the modern sci-fi classic Looper, as well as Brick and the Brothers Blue. He was also behind the camera for three episodes of the critically acclaimed TV series Breaking Bad, including Ozymandias, which series creator Vince Gillian named as the best installment of the show. And then, of course, yeah, you know, J.J. Abrams is going to be serving as a uh, executive producer. So that's it. Any 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 response to any of that Disney news, sir? Yeah. So are they going to go back like with with what they did in some of their animated movies and digitally eliminate cigarette smoking in their live features? I can for some reason I can see them doing that. I would imagine probably not right away, but uh, and I think God. given the overwhelming negative response to things like Pecos Bill. From the you know from back in the day where they've removed that stuff, I think I think they're not going to do that anymore. I think it just boils down to they're not going to do it going forward. Ah, uh, I don't know. It just kind of annoys me. If they make a cowboy movie, cowboys smoked, they drank, you know, pirates. And again, this th- that would be historical. I suppose that might be under the umbrella of historical. I guess it's how they can cover their ass for. Pirates of the Caribbean, so Johnny Depp can continue being drunk. Or, uh, not Johnny Depp. His <laughs> character can continue being drunk. Alright, so, uh, my first piece of news comes to us from ScreenCrush.com. Still Alice writer and director Richard Glatzer, dead at 63. Deadline reports that Glatzer passed away, uh, not yesterday. This article came out five days ago, so... Five days ago from March 16th, which is when we're recording. So I guess that would be March 10th. Yeah. So Deadline reports that Glasser passed away yesterday, March 10th, in Los Angeles due to complications from ALS, a disease he was initially diagnosed with in 2011. 
Glatzer co-wrote and co-directed the film with his husband, Wash Westmoreland, with whom he also directed the films The Last of Robin Hood and Quincinera. Quincinera. I could never say that word. Ever. The duo had recently sold a new pitch, the details of which are currently unknown. Glatzer and Westmoreland worked as consultants to the long-running series America's Next Top Model, but established themselves as collaborative filmmakers with their 2001 film, The Fluffer. It was Glatzer and Westmoreland's most recent film, Still Alice, that earned the pair considerable attention, particularly thanks to Julian Moore's amazing performance as Alice, a linguistics professor coping with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. End all quotes. And I have to say that this has got to be some some great inspiration for those that are uh, that have been diagnosed with ALS, because as you can see him uh, in in stills from behind the scenes of the making of the movie, and as well as during the whole red carpet or during the the uh, the award season, he's in his uh, he's confined to his wheelchair. Yet he was able to carry out his passion of filmmaking and writing and creating this one story that he was very passionate about. And it turned out to be a really good movie, and it gave Julianne Moore her Oscar-winning performance. So uh, I gotta say it's awfully sad, but I'm glad he was able to accomplish what he was wanting to accomplish. And he put his own stamp on it too, which is great, for a good cause. Uh, Again, this is from Screen Crush, and it was still Alice... Writer and director Richard Glatzer, dead at 63. And what do you got next? Um, Schmagma Mouth? I mean, not Schmagma Mouth. <sighs> what is it called again? What? I don't know. The I, pollen I, stuff. I, you you, you oh, called it. Oh, plant bukkake. Plant bukkake. How the hell are you getting smegma that yeah. you mispronounced? Do you know what schmagma is? Uh, dick cheese? I know. That's kind of... It's the penile cheese of nature. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Let's see here. Um, all right. Here's a, here's, a, here's a quick one. From bloodydisgusting.com, <clears throat> courtesy of Jonathan Barkin. The Crow has officially been cast... It's being reported by Dread Central that Jack Houston, who played Rich, who plays Richard Harrow on Boardwalk Empire, has, offic- has been officially cast as the lead in the upcoming remake of The Crow. The site spoke with creator James O'Barr, who stated that Houston has, quote, definitely been cast, end quote, and that he was, quote, really happy with that choice, end quote. Um... I personally am not happy. This is a film that does not need to be remade. Holy shit, what the hell's the matter with you people? <sighs> Whatever. Alright, so there's that. I guess. <laughs> uh, next up, again from ScreenCrush.com, Lee Neeson says he's ready to quit action movies. This is written by Jacob Hall. I'm just going to read his uh, his direct quotes. Not, I'm not going to really go through this article, but this is what he said while he was out promoting his new film, Run All Night. He says this, maybe two more years, if God spares me and I'm healthy, but after that, I'll stop the action. I think. 
I'm in a very career-wise great place. After the success of certainly the Taken films, Hollywood seems to see me in a different light. I get sent quite a few action-oriented scripts, which is great. I'm not knocking it. It's very flattering. But there is a limit, of course. And all quotes. Matt, your thoughts, concerns of Liam Neeson quitting action is out of breath of fresh air. Because, let's face it, he's basically playing the same person every freaking movie. Yeah, but he was supposed to be quitting after Star Wars Episode One. He was supposed to, like focus more on um, non-action oriented roles and stuff and here we are so i think i'll just believe it when i see it well i guess we can just mark our calendars for two years from now we'll see how it goes happy saint patrick's day (laughs) clink the green beer (sighs) all right last for me from ign.com eddie murphy to play richard pryor's father in biopic uh, and this is, I'm sorry, this is uh, courtesy of Anthony Kautu. I hope I said that right. Yes, Oscar nominee Eddie Murphy is in talks to play Richard Pryor's father, former boxer Leroy Buck Carter Pryor, in Lee Daniels' upcoming biopic of the late comedian on Thursday. Uh, so since we're this article is from the 14th of March, we're of course on the 16th of March, so clearly this was last Thursday. Daniels uploaded the following photo of him and Eddie Murphy on Instagram, a very nice, lovely picture of him, on, of them, which included the caption, quote, strap in and brace yourself. They done let me and him out of our cages. I'm not going to read all the hashtags, so end the quote there. This is, uh, what it, I mean, this is pretty cool, right? Yeah. He actually got to star with Richard Pryor in Harlem Nights. It's a very sad story. Uh, Richard Pryor's life is a really sad story because he basically grew up in a in a brothel, and apparently his dad was very abusive and not not the nicest guy. So I think it'll be a very interesting acting turn for for Eddie Murphy. I would agree with that. All right, sir. So I'm done. All right. Well, last for me is from Yahoo News, and it pertains to David Zucker's classic. Naked Gun series. Well, it turns out they're wanting to reboot the Naked Gun films. Obviously, not with uh, Leslie Nielsen. The studios are apparently not wanting to go in that goofy, zany direction. Which kind of is is a little weird. Because, I mean, it's the Naked Gun. What's It's, it's kind of like how I feel with Ghostbusters, you know? If you're not going to completely reboot the movie... Based on, you know, how it is. I mean, it's not like The Naked Gun is this big property to where, you know, you can kind of, like, have fun and tweak it and make it your own. It's The Naked freaking Gun. It, it was a Leslie Nielsen vehicle. There's no point to do it. You can, you can make virtually the same movie and tweak it, but call it something else. And you'd be golden, for sure. But uh, here's the quote from Yahoo News. It won't be like The Naked Gun that I did. It may be good, but it won't be that kind of movie. They're going to use the title. They asked me if I wanted wanted to produce. They're nice people, but they don't want to do the style of spoof that I do. I would want somebody who had never been in a comedy before. Ed Helms is very well known for three of the biggest comedies ever. I understand why Paramount is doing what they're doing. If my name was on it, I would be making all sorts of suggestions and trying to change it. And it would be frustrating. 
End all quotes. So yes, Ed Helms is supposed to play the Leslie Nelson character. Matt, what do you think? Do you want to see this movie? Do you not care? Does Ed Helms brighten the idea a little bit more for you? Well, I think that the problem today with the Naked Gun is that, and and to a lesser degree, Airplane. Um, Airplane really has just kind of one of those eternally funny things that is not heavily dated in terms of material, um, though visually it might be. Whereas Naked Gun kind of spoofs crime serials of a particular era. And, you know, think uh, Beretta, uh, Streets of San Francisco, that, that kind of thing. And it's... And so it's very dated. And I think that if you're going to update it, then that's fine. But if you're going to call it the Naked Gun, then it needs to be a proper spoof. And I think there's plenty of stuff out there now. You've got all the CSI. You've got um, the you've got like Blue Bloods, which is a good drama now that they've got out nowadays and stuff like that. So there's plenty of stuff that you can pull from to create a really good spoof. But if it's not going to be a spoof, a true spoof, then it doesn't need to be called naked gun at all. Cause you're just setting people up. You're setting, you're setting everybody up for failure. You're setting up the film for, to fail because you're, you're basically duping audiences into thinking that it's something that it's not. So, but Ed Helms is, is uh, take it or leave it for me. I, I thought he was nice on the office. Um, whatever for the hangover. And he's a part of the the vacation reboot as well. Yeah, but that one that one is he's playing Rusty. I know, but but the whole setup of that movie, I think it's going to work. I think it'll be all right. So I'm I'm actually really excited for that part. I don't know. It's it's crossing the streams for me. You either remake the Chevy Chase movie or you remake the Leslie Nielsen movie. Crossing the streams. All right, so I believe that's going to go ahead and conclude Das News and yeah, bring us to our... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim. Matt and Tim discuss... Life After Pi, a documentary on the state of the VFX industry as it pertains to Rhythm and Hues, a VFX studio that had to declare bankruptcy 11 days before winning the Academy Award for Life of Pi in the VFX category. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. Yeah. All right. Um. So just like the uh, announcer guy said, who is apparently also under the weather, uh, we we hope he recovers soon. Um. It's life after Pi. Now this came out last year, and was definitely something I had seen at the time. I made sure to rewatch it uh, this evening before the show started, and. I am kind of left feeling rather conflicted. It tells the, the the story 
of the ailing VFX industry as a whole, but it is using the failure of rhythm and hues as kind of a microcosm for the for everything that's going wrong. Now, <coughs> pardon me. They seem to have a a little bit of a duality going on. Like they seem to want to preserve some kind of clear working relationship with the studios. So they do they do their best to be as even-handed with the studios as possible until like the last four minutes, and then it's like, you know, fuck the studios, look what they're doing. Ha, look at the VFX industry. We're galvanized now, but we don't know what we want. Um and the problem seems to be something that is increasingly working itself out. Now whether or not it's to the detriment of the people who work in the VFX industry, well, that's certainly something that is completely open for discussion. But as these studios are forced to close, less and less studios are available for work, which means that the dollar is going to have to go somewhere. And who knows, it might turn out to be something that goes back to an in-house kind of a deal for the studios, um, or perhaps maybe... The VFX houses can band together to help boost their availability of income. But it all boils, it basically all revolves around, rather, the idea of a fixed price, of fixed pricing when it comes to, when it comes to making VFX shots. So the studio says, look, we need a hundred shots done. We need a hundred shots done for this movie. Uh, we want to pay you know, $10 million. And so the VFX company says, okay, well, we will take that bid for $10 million. And then, of course, due to the way that the VFX industry works in relation to how a physical production is made, you have um, com- you have a weird kind of autonomy for the VFX studio that ends up costing them money because by the time the people on the production side see it they're like oh this is what we want we want something different um and so they're having to go back and continue to work and spend more payroll and everything like that also as it comes close to the movie being released they might have to work into additional production for example when you see a trailer and you're kind of like wow the effects kind of look kind of clunky but then when you go and see the movie you're like wow this is so cleaned up well that's because that's what's happening. Those those deadlines are being met, but then things are changing and they're having to spend more money to make those shots. Um, the other side of that is, is that the, the governments, in trying to get people to make movies where they are, are saying, hey, we're going to throw tax subsidies at you. So the taxes that you would normally have to pay for, you know, sales tax and payroll taxes and all that kind of stuff, well, we'll, we'll subsidize that. We'll give you money back. So they use an example in here. Oh, well, if Vancouver opens up a... Uh, Vancouver says, hey, if you spend $10 million with us, we'll give you $3 million back in tax credits. So that means if someone is in California and wants to take the job, well, instead of being able to pay $10 million, they have to automatically bid out at $7 million. So they're losing $3 million right off the bat, or else the job goes to Vancouver. Now, in order to keep those things going, so what they do is they go and they open up, uh, open up an office. That costs money. Well, now the tax credit moves to somewhere else, and then the tax credit moved to somewhere else. So they have to keep opening these houses, and they can't, it's just not sustainable. 
um, which is also hard on the employees who have to, uh, uh, as per Life After Prize shows, who a lot of them are independent contractors. Some of them, one of the guys has lived in a hotel for a long time. Uh, he's a bachelor, you know, so he doesn't have anything in terms of uh, relationships and stuff like that, except for what he has at work. Um, and so there's a lot of issues that go into that. But I, at the end of the day, they they admittedly put themselves in a bad position. They set up a system that caused, that ultimately caused the ruination of their own industry. Now, I'm not saying that one person's at fault or the studios are just bad or these guys don't know how to run a business, but people have been seeing the writing on the wall. They saw the writing on the wall for years and yet, nothing was ever able to be worked out. Um, studios have to make a certain, they, they have shareholders that they have to, that they, that they're beholden to for better or for worse. Um, you know, it's when you have people who are able to negotiate contracts, actors and stuff who are able to negotiate contracts for 85 to a hundred million dollars, after the money's coming in, I mean, it starts, and, and it's more than just one, you can start to see how it takes a billion dollars before these movies start making any money. Now, is that the case all the time? Of course not. But you can, I mean, the, the case starts to be getting made. Well, I mean, everybody wants a piece of the pie. Everybody wants to get in on that. But at the same time, there's only so much money to go around. Um, you also have box office bombs that have to be made up for, like Lone Ranger and things like that. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky, tricky thing. But I really think that the fewer studios that remain, and in this particular instance, Rhythm and Hughes was at, was eventually bought out by uh, another group of investors. So in at least as of February of last year, Rhythm and Hughes still existed in some state. There's no choice left but for them as to band together and say, look guys, the price of, you know, the price of admission has gone up. This is what we need. Or they need to be able to not have fixed pricing like well then we're not going to do it i mean i think if everybody says no to fixed pricing then fixed pricing will go away um perhaps maybe another answer could be that there needs to be a second director who does nothing but talk to the director and the head of the vfx team so that you have a permanent bridge that prevents all of these reshoots being made or having to have all of these shots redone or changed or that's not what we were looking for. Um, to, to bridge that gap so that you can have the physical production side, but at the same time, the VFX side is taken care of. I mean, I, and I, and I totally feel bad for all of these people who lost their jobs, for people who weren't getting paid, people who did all this kind of stuff. Um, who have to move all, all around the world or all across the country and, and they don't have any real form of job security. They're away from their families. It's a terrible thing. But at the end of the day, at the end of every day, 
you have to do what's best for you and and if that means you walk away then you walk away and i think that's the biggest problem is nobody's willing to walk away until it's until it comes crashing down around them so i've clearly gone on way too long but so i mean i feel for them but at the end i, I mean I, yeah i feel for them but that they're gonna have to figure out a way to do that and i think that the fewer vfx houses that stand the easier that it will become for them to do so and there you go so tim this was your idea what what do you have to say sir i think it's a great documentary i mean it, it i mean for it being a, a a short documentary they packed a lot of information into that 20 some odd minutes and I gotta say, it's hard for these guys to walk away. It's hard to walk away in this business when it comes to money, when it comes to deadlines. You just can't do that. And unfortunately, these visual effects houses, uh, specifically this one, these guys are kind of caught in a corner, you know? You can't really do anything. You have to meet a deadline, and you know that. I mean, these guys meet their deadlines, but they're only working, they're only doing as best as they could with the limited information that they have as to like what they talk about with uh, Life of Pi. They talk about a big storm scene. And so they were given the information, they were told what to do, and they made this great storm scene. Well, Ang Lee, the director of Life of Pi, looked at it and said, no, 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 I want the water doing this, not that. I want the wind. So they have to go back and redo it. Which means that's more time, but they're not getting paid extra for that time. And I think a lot of this also goes back to the early days when contracts were made, when a system was been uh, was put in place, back when effects were more practical, back when effects were more of like a, 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 a like a niche sort of thing, you know, where. They knew if there was going to be a big special effect, oh, well, these special effects are going to take a year to make, opposed to, you know, a couple months nowadays. And so there is more time spent. Now there's more of a demand for special effects. There's more of a quick turnaround. And I think it definitely falls in, uh, with the studio uh, to make or to uh, to initiate some of these changes because it has to be somebody from the studio to be like, okay, well, we need to figure out a way to regulate what is going on between Rhythm and Hues or between any uh, between the visual effects house and what we are doing. Kind of like what Matt was saying and what they were talking about in the, in the documentary. There has to be a middleman. There has to be somebody that works directly with the technicians and engineers so they know exactly what they have to do. So the in the technicians aren't the ones that are being held accountable. It's the middleman who belongs to the studio. And so with that, the studio is at fault to an extent. So I think stuff like that is important. Not to talk about the technical side uh, of all the stuff, I guess, but uh, visual effects artists are super important because as what Matt and I saw with uh, with Kingsman, and I'm sure people that are listening to this podcast right now, some of you I'm sure have seen uh, the Kingsman Secret Service movie, what almost completely killed the movie was its really shitty visual effects. 
Now, with all these visual effects companies, all these guys that do put in hard work, um, and I know there are there are definitely visual effects houses out there that are really good that do do spectacular work, like the work that was done on Life of Pi. Uh, I'm sure Star Wars, the visual effects for Star Wars is going to look great or whatever. But if all these visual effects houses that need money go away, I'm afraid that we're going to be left with a whole bunch of visual effects houses that are going to be asking for less money. Therefore, the work is not going to be all that great, uh, whether it's because they can't afford it or they're not putting as much effort into it or, or what. And that's what is a big concern for me, is because it's kind of refreshing watching a smaller movie and seeing stellar special effects. And that might not happen, you know, 10, 20 years from now. Who knows? And I don't know about you guys, but when I was young, when I was a young lass, I would watch, they used to have all these TV shows, like on the Discovery Channel and... Uh, I, I think even like late night on uh, one of the basic cable channels, they would have various programs related to movie making. I think one was called Movie Magic, which was all about stunts and how uh, special effects were done. And the emphasis in the 90s were, uh, were, were like sets and props and stuff. And of course, everything done with the Abyss and Independence Day, for example. That was another one that I remember they, they would cover a lot. To me, that stuff inspired me to be a filmmaker. That was one of many things that inspired me to be a filmmaker. Especially, I think that's how, uh, that's what helped me hone down, like, my distinct style. Like, if, like, whenever I make a movie, I'm, I want to have a distinct style. And I think it's important to have inspiration from visual effects artists in order to hone down your visual style as a filmmaker. To really be able to uh, I guess maybe broaden your palette of visual styles. And because that all doesn't necessarily come from your director of photography or your uh, or, or your director in general, when there's special effects, you have to have a head of visual effects to direct that style, to come up with something. You have to have an imagination. And that's what I don't want to lose out of all of this bullshit. Granted, it's not really happening now, I'm sure, but in the future when there will be more of a demand for high-quality special effects, again, I'm worried that there will not be as much high-quality effects to buy out for your film. So, that's where I stand. I thought it was good. Uh, I'm glad we talked about it. Uh, or monologue about it, I guess I should say. Yeah, not 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 exactly much of a discussion this time. <laughs> Monologues much of a with re- Matt and review. Tim. Yeah. <laughs> 30 minute documentary review <laughs> with Matt and Tim. Soapbox with Matt and there Tim. There you go. Yes. All right. Well, then, last but not least, here, I guess, let me go ahead and uh, say that this concludes our makeshift discussions with Matt and Tim. Next time on Discussions with Matt and Tim. There will hopefully be an actual discussion on the following article from theatlantic.com. An article by Garen Pernia. 1985, the last great year in film for kids and young adults. Next time on Discussions, hopefully, with Matt and Tim. 
All right, so I guess that brings us to the last segment, which of course is the movies. <laughs> So, we've got three movies here this week, uh, as per normal. Maps to the Stars, Chappie, and Cinderella. 2015 version, of course. Where do you want to start first, sir? Why don't we save the worst for last and go with Maps to the Stars? Wait, so we're not starting with, we're not starting with Cinderella? <laughs> Alright, here we go, folks. Maps to the Stars. 2014 satirical drama films directed by David Cronenberg and stars Julianne Moore, Mia Wasikowska, John Cusack, Robert Pattinson, Olivia Willems, Sarah Gadon, and Eva Bird. Um, this is a movie about a child star and a kind of a washed up actress that... Whether or not intentionally is trying, whether or not intentionally so, I guess maybe that's where the satire comes in. Trying to show just exactly how screwed up things really can be behind the scenes in Hollywood. Um, we have a young lady by the name of Agatha. She um, hires a limo driver to take her to... Uh, a kid's uh, 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 Benji Benji Weiss. Uh, it's a former child star. He's trying to reinvigorate his career. His mom and dad um, are equally kind of weird. Um, <laughs> oh my god, this movie is so incredibly all over the place. Uh, let's see here. I am so sorry, guys and gals and friends and neighbors. It's a lot like Magnolia in terms of several very wildly different subplots that kind of weave together. Uh, let's see here. So we've got a, uh, let's see here. So Benji's dad is Dr. Stafford Weiss. Um, he is a TV psychologist. He's treating uh, kind of a, I, I don't want to necessarily, I, I guess has been, is more or less we'll we'll just call her a B lister. Um, she's played by <clears throat> her name's Havana Sagran. She suffered abuse at, at her. Uh, she suffered abuse from her mother, who was also an actress. Um, she's trying to attain a role that was made famous by her mother, but she can't seem to get it. Um. Then we also have. Um, Benji's mom, Christina, who is basically his manager and is in trying to charge, uh, is is trying to reinvigorate his career as well. But it turns out, uh, make sure I got this right, Tim, because this is where it starts. Kind of, Christina, Benji's mom, is Stafford's wife, right? Yes. I don't know okay. how far you're wanting to go with, with the I'm synopsis. Trying, uh, yeah, okay. It just starts getting weird. But yeah, so um, at this point, once you start seeing these two these two people in the in the uh, roles of Benji 
and Havana trying to reinvigorate their careers, this is kind of when you start seeing all these divergent things happening. Um, and a lot of it revolves around a triangle, if you will, but not a love triangle, but a triangle, if you will, between Stafford, Christina, and Agatha. Um, and it, but it involves heavily Benji. Um, Havana, it turns out, is involved via Agatha, but displays more of her mom than she would care to let on by the end of the film. Um, due to the circumstances revolving, the, it, it, revolving around the triangle of Stafford and Christina and Agatha, <clears throat> I'm actually getting this now. We're, we're getting in here. It's been a long time coming, but here it comes, folks. We're taking a long way down. Um, a side split happens between Benji and Agatha that kind of brings the crux of the movie into place and and gives the ending of the movie as it were. That is about as spoiler-free as I can make it. Does that w Did that make any kind of sense, Tim? Does this movie make sense? <laughs> Well, that's the problem. Is I'm trying to, I'm trying to be fair about the plot without giving it all away. Yeah, with, no, it, uh, with it a works. movie that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and that was the thing. Where okay, so we were discussing this briefly before the show, and I say that this reminds me. It's very reminiscent for me of Magnolia. Magnolia also had a uh, very divergent series of mini plots in these kind of outlandish characters who interweave to form the narrative of a story. But where Magnolia succeeded for me in creating a cohesive tale that um, that I enjoyed, and you have all these vibrant characters doing different things, but creating the story out of, you know, a whole bunch of dysfunctional relationships, this movie just kind of feels disjointed the whole time and leaves you going, what? Why? Huh? And then the movie ends, and I was really personally disappointed with the ending because the ending, I felt, tried to take itself more seriously than it was worth taking after this really weird sequence of events. Um, it's an interesting movie. It's an interesting movie but it's just a little bit better than okay. Uh, my my head kind of turns on it, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna come in two point seven five on this one. It's better than okay. Not quite liked it. There's interesting performances, um, but as Tim will tell you, I think that a movie. This movie was um, in production development hell for a while and i think sometimes it's better just to let things go but i'll let tim fill you in on kind of the background because he was he was helping me try to understand it a little bit better so 2.75 for me go ahead tim yeah I, what's interesting about this movie is that it was actually written 20 years ago ish and the guy who wrote it is somebody that's been in i, I forget his name uh but he has been in the Hollywood circuit for a while. And I was watching all these and reading all these interviews that he was uh, doing with about this movie. And he was saying that most of the lines or all the out, every single outrageous line that is in this movie that somebody says, 
he's heard real people in the industry actually utter those words. And it's and what's also interesting is that you have the Benji character who who reminds everybody of Justin Bieber, for example. And yet the character was wrote, you know, was written years ago. So it's amazing or not amazing, but it kind of puts things into perspective how Hollywood kind of repeats itself over the years throughout the generations. Like there will always be another Justin Bieber. There will always be you know, I mean, there are oodles of Julian Moore's characters. Uh, I mean, you can watch The Real Housewives, and probably 65% of those women are the broken-down, has-been women that are trying so hard to be relevant in current society, you know, all at the same time trying to, you know, show their tits off to the entire world to make some money. That's everywhere. You know, I mean, that happens all the time. And so when this movie captures it, it makes it intriguing to watch. And really, that's what held my attention for the one hour and 53 minute running time, is that it's a very interesting film. However, there is a slew of negatives about this movie. For example, it's shot very much like a Lifetime movie. The look of the movie is very one-dimensional. I don't know why, but Cronenberg's last few movies, uh, it's like he had an idea of what movie he wanted to make, but not how to shoot it, not how to capture it. I mean, I guess thinking about it, it could be ironic in a way that maybe he purposefully shot the movie one-dimensionally to show you how one-dimensional these people are, uh, and there's really no actual real depth to them whatsoever, that's a possibility. I mean, I'm kind of leaning more towards it was a coincidence. But, uh, you know, for the sake of not knocking this movie too much, I'll say that was a really good director's choice, David Cronenberg. Good job making this movie feel and look like a lifetime movie. Again, but though it was an, an intriguing premise, there are some good performances. The the girl, Wachikowski, she does a really good job. She was my favorite performance in the entire movie. Julianne Moore, she has some really good scenes in this movie. However, she has some really bad scenes in this movie, and it's not her fault. I think it was the actor uh, whom she was paired with, or it was the script itself. The dialogue wasn't that strong, and it happens a lot throughout the movie. And seriously, what is holding this movie together is the plot and premise itself, not necessarily the execution. But to me, that's kind of like how a lot of Cronenberg's more recent movies are like. Very interesting, but kind of a shallow execution until there are these really great scenes that really kind of put the movie in perspective for a way, and then it kind of goes back doing what it was doing before. So it can kind of get a little annoying. It's kind of like this, I mean, Cronenberg movies are like the ultimate bipolar movies. It's up here for a while, then it's down here for a while. It's up here for a while, then somebody's is monologuing about their shit and what Vicodin does to their shit and Julian Moore taking a dump on the toilet and listening to her. I mean, just stuff like that, that really didn't need to be in the movie was in the movie for comedic effect. It felt like, or maybe it was there to show you how disgusting these people really are. It could be that as well. One more thing. I couldn't tell if the Benji character, the Bieber type character, if he was a really good actor or if he was not good. 
don't know, Matt. What, did, did you get that feeling at all that you felt some of these characters or some of these performances were good, or maybe they were just bad? I, I don't. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense I or not. I felt like I think I think you really nailed it on the head. The the cinematography making it look like a lifetime movie made you question the look of everything, which means even the characters on the screen. And I don't. I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Yet I still give this movie two point five. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Fair enough. Okay, so then we're moving on to Cinderella, the 2015 version. Now, this is, of course, the romantic fantasy film. It's directed by Kenneth Branagh, so I was very excited um, because I think I personally think he kind of got the shaft when it came to Thor. He should have he should have been able to come back and do uh, Thor: Dark World, but whatever. That's my own personal thing. Uh, this movie is, of course, the 2015 rendition of the classic Cinderella tale. Uh, it stars Lily James and Richard Madden, Kate Blanchett, Stellan Skarsgård, Holiday Granger, Derek Jacoby, and Helena Bonham Carter. Um, <clears throat> this is a very updated take. It's no longer work and toil and hope for some prince to just take you out of your misery and save you and make it worth your while. Um, the updated moral, if you will, is have courage and be kind. It's tough. It's hard sometimes in the face of having everything in your life go wrong and having just shit kicked in your face all the time to have the courage to still be kind and still look for the best in the situation and try to be the better person. That's hard to do. And it shows that good things can happen to good people. You just have to have faith and hang on. Um, and I, I, I really personally enjoyed how, I mean, she got sincerely pretty much kicked in, in the teeth by, you know, just before she has the little transformation before the ball. Um, the visual effects of this film are just completely outstanding. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that was done that you would think would have been uh, VFX, but was not. For example, like the actual ballroom, all of it real, including the 17 chandeliers hanging from the ceilings that with all each 50,000 stupid little crystals hanging on them and 5,000 hand-lit candles on each of those 17 chandeliers. Um real marble floors and on the staircase uh, and the staircase for the grand entry and everything like that all of that stuff done 200 extras in the ballroom scene alone each needing five hours of makeup and cost i mean they really went out of their way to do as much practical effects as they did visual effects um the movie itself really shines for me when it is when it is properly telling the Cinderella story in this new format. Um, it's not just about Prince Charming sweeping Cinderella off her feet. It's Cinderella influencing the, the way that Charming thinks and trying to, and, and showing other people a different way to look at the situation. Um, Kate Blanchett, uh, they actually did a good job of it, of attempting to not so much make her relatable, but at least 
understand her motivation. And that's something that I think was sorely missing from the animated version so many years ago. You just accepted because you're a kid. Ah, she's the bad guy. Why is she the bad guy? She's just a bad guy. She's always been the bad guy. Um, I thought the sisters did a fantastic job of acting spoiled. Um, but at the same time, being so hilariously funny about their spoiled that even though they're bad and you don't like them... Um, you still are willing to laugh at them in their hilarity of being evil. So all that being said, all these wonderful things being said about it, this movie is not a perfect movie. Um, for one thing, Helena Bottom Carter, I really think she overdid it. Good. What? Yeah, no, good. Keep going. Oh, okay. you're, you're getting there. You're getting there. Come on, keep going. <laughs> she really, really overdid it. Um, it was funny at first, like when she does her little, when she's the old woman and then kind of turns into the beautiful thing, but it just, it was, everything that she did was virtually unnecessary in terms of being able to be somewhat goofy and absent-minded, a la the stories that you've read when you're a child uh, and watching the original animated movie, it's like she took it to the nth degree just because she's Helena Bottom Carter. <clears throat> I'm sorry, pardon me, Helena Bottom Carter. Um, and it was just grossly overdone. And thankfully, she's only in the movie for like three minutes. So I mean, you, you've, I mean, I guess that's good. The other side of this, um was the complete unnecessary evilness of Stellan Skarsgård's character in The Grand Duke. Um, it was just totally unnecessary. Uh, I realize, I guess, that that was the only way they could provide for Lady Tremaine to be as evil as she needed to be in the back end of the movie, but I felt that was just completely contrived, and... Not necessary at all. The other side of that, though, is that the movie kind of hurt itself when it was trying to be beautiful. For example, um, when she, when Cinderella comes down the grand staircase, um, and they're taking just for goddamn ever for her to walk down. You know, it, look, it's like two minutes for her to come down the stairs. I mean, seriously, it doesn't take that long. Um, Certain parts of the story that are when they're doing transitions and everything um, from her childhood to her, uh, young adulthood or what have you, things that are designed to be visually splendid are instead taxing on time because it's obvious that I, I, I don't know if Kenneth Branagh was searching for filler or if he just wanted you to sit back resplendent in the eye candy that of uh, that is the era and i and so i don't know if that was necessarily something that was just crossed wires between him and the cinematographer which was harris zambalukos um or if that was something that was intended and just kind of taken too far um all in all, I really did enjoy this movie, but the technical levels and the unnecessary 
inclusion of Helena Bottom Carter, I had actually put down four stars anyway, but I think it's 3.75. I can't, I, as much, it's a great movie. I enjoyed it. My girls loved it. I mean, so there's, most people will too. Um, but I just, I just don't feel right giving it the full four stars. So 3.75 on Cinderella. What do you got, Tim? I too think that this isn't an absolutely perfect movie, but by God, I have never seen a better, I have not seen a better Disney movie than this movie in a long ass time. This is a 4.5 star movie for me, and it was four point, it was, it was five stars up until a particular point of the movie, probably about halfway, and it was 4.75 until the last act-ish of the movie, but still a 4.5 star movie. I had this feeling, granted, I went by myself at 9.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning so I could beat the mad kid crazy rush, uh, and I I was so happy to be there to go see this on the big screen. I, there was just, I, I had this feeling inside of me throughout the entire movie, like I was watching something that was made, that, that was catering towards everything that I've ever wanted to see, in a movie like this, in a princess movie, in a Disney movie, that has been lacking so much since I probably the early 90s Disney movies, where they were churning out so many classic films for the longest time until they hit their late 90s, early 2000s slump, until Pixar came out and, you know, kind of revitalized everything, more so than what they already did with, you know, Bugs Life and Toy Story and all. This is a beautiful movie. Uh, I honestly think there is no filler in this movie whatsoever. Watching this this little girl grow up and become Ella or you know Cinderella was beautiful. You, you it puts everything into perspective. Not only the evil stepmother, but Cinderella herself. In the cartoon, you there's this there's this girl that you know you just feel sorry for, and like what Matt said, you just don't think anything of it. And you just you're just kind of enamored by the story or with the story. Well, everybody knows the story of Cinderella. This is a fresh take on it, yet it's still very classic. And it it was beautiful, very whimsical. But again, uh, with watching her grow up, it created a character for her. You know, there's more of a backstory. You had a reason to care. You had a reason. There was a feeling inside of you. There was that want of her, you know, going to the ball and being with the prince. And a lot of factors came into play in making you, the audience, root for her, root for the prince, root for the story itself, you know, root for everything to come together. Because the movie was masterfully crafted. I mean, I I can give this movie so much praise. Best prince I've seen in a Disney movie in in the longest time. I've never cared two shits about a prince uh, for a long time until this movie. I loved his relationship. I loved his relationship with the father. I like how his relationship with Cinderella, how he treats her, and how his first words, I mean, like, when he looks at her, it's not about her beauty, her, you know, the the materialistic beauty. It's about the inside. Like, oh, she's, you know, she's a very lovely woman. She's a very lovely girl. There's something about her that caught his eye, and it wasn't necessarily the beauty, but it was just the very essence of her as a person. And to me, that is definitely more romantic, and I think that is definitely what uh, what young girls need to be exposed more to. But 
with saying that, that leads me into a problem with this movie. It falls in line with the fairy godmother in Helena Bonham Carter's performance. Now, yes, Helena Bonham Carter plays the or plays the fairy godmother as somebody goofy, zippy, zippity doo dah e, uh, very quick and very all over the place. And that's okay, but you've seen her play that so many times before. What I wanted to see from the character, I wanted to see somebody, like in the cartoon, somebody that was more grandmotherly. Somebody to teach her right before she goes to that ball to give her that one last bit of advice to put everything in perspective. Not just for the audience, but for Cinderella as a character. And it could have been a moral, it could have been a, a, you know, a lesson. And I think an important lesson would have been that uh, materialism is not a necessity in life. And that could fall into, you don't have to be a royal to be happy. You don't have to have money to be happy. But instead, what you're given in the movie is the fairy godmother being like a diva from Say Yes to the Dress or from, you know, whatever Project Runway, you know, or or something like that, saying like, oh, you need beautiful shoes. Oh, look at those sandals that you're wearing. And Cinderella's like, well, yeah, these are, you know, nobody's going to see them. I don't need anything. Well, yes, you do. I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you the gaudiest pair of goddamn slippers, glass slippers. And I'm not saying they should have completely exempted the glass slippers from the movie, but they could have worked it in a little bit better, you know, again, with a moral, with a lesson, something with materialism. And they touch on it a little bit later on, but I think it would have been best if it came from the fairy godmother herself, Uh, again, as more of a motherly or grandmotherly uh, character, Or, or, or symbol, even. Um, let's see here. Uh, I felt that all the characters had equal screen time, as in I was like it, it was all fulfilling to me. Like the stepsisters, uh, Kate Blanchett's character, the prince, even even all the other side characters in the kingdom, to me, perfectly placed in the movie with a great with everybody had their had their had their perfect amount of time uh, amount of screen time without it being overkill which also adds to the movie's forwardness you know it doesn't really meddle around in any one thing for a long period of time and in fact i thought the ballroom scene is absolutely beautiful and stunning especially with her coming down because to me that is a character realizing where she is you know her her dream is coming to or is coming into fruition right there and the music is beautiful and you're experiencing that moment with cinderella and to me that was wonderfully done and i give that all uh give all that credit to uh branagh and his uh dp and i think that basically covers it i just had a little problem with the end the, the like the last maybe minute or so i thought it was just kind of like, oh, let's wrap this thing up and do it the most generic way. And it did for the most part, but still I give this movie 4.5 stars out of 5. I highly recommend it. So far my favorite movie of 2015. Who would have known? Wow, indeed. All right, you know what? I'm bumping it back up to 4 after listening to you. Cool, man. All right, so last but not least is Chappie. Now that we have everybody's hopes up for a... <laughs> Yeah, for another <laughs> All good right, movie. So I have a theory. I was talking with Ch- uh, with Tim about this before. I have a theory that every generation needs a M Night Shyamalan, and I and I feel that Neil Blomkamp is 
that person now. Because if you look at the quality of M. Night Shyamalan's films, they steadily went downhill. Um, and while we both agree that Unbreakable and The Village were good, we liked those, but, but I mean, there was still a step-down quality. And then, of course, it's just gone to shit. It's just that Neil Blomkamp's done it <clears throat> at an epically faster pace. Um, you had uh, District 9 with a 90% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Then you had uh, um, Elysium, which was my first ever zero-star rating, and it had a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes. And now we have Chappie, which is 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, I mean, it's just like exponentially faster. I have no idea. I don't want to see the new Alien movie now. I, so. I bet that's uh, making <laughs> geeks worldwide cringing right now. <laughs> like, oh, great, they gave it to this guy? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, now I will say this, though. Much like, um, oh, dear God, brain fart, uh, Avengers director, Firefly director. Um, Joss Whedon? Thank you, oh, my God. So much like Joss Whedon using all of his friends over and over again in lots of different things. I have to give Neil Blomkamp credit for constantly using uh, Shalto Copley. So that's cool, I guess. You have to give him that. Um, he plays Chappie and does the motion capture for Chappie. So there you go. You have Dev Patel, uh, Hugh Jackman, Sigourney Weaver, uh, who's in the movie for about 36.4 seconds, I think. Um you have what could have been like this really cool setup of the young Dev Patel, the idealist who is trying to create a robot to actually help people versus Hugh Jackman, who is the evil capitalist uh, corporation monger who's out to take over the world with his robotic machines and kind of balance that against the backdrop of a robot a la Johnny Five, right? From Short Circuit. But instead, what you get is the fucking Mario Brothers film of gang people who just use a robot, a, a theoretically sentient robot, for hijinks to pay back a loan. This movie sucks. Um, the special effects are pretty cool. I didn't quite hate this movie, but it is 1.5. I don't. I don't want to talk about it. It's. It's. There's. What I've said is what I have to say. 1.5. I didn't quite hate it. I just really, really don't like it. 1.5. Thank you. I'm done. Yeah, I don't know if I can say this or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. I had the chance to watch this movie six or seven months ago, back when they were still getting the visual effects for it together. So it was a very raw cut. But it still had music, and it didn't have uh, one of the only redeeming qualities of the movie, which was, uh, uh, oh shit, Han did Hans Zimmer do the score for the movie? I yes. think it was Hans yes. Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, yeah. Yeah, Hans Zimmer's score was, was kind of cool, but it, di it didn't have that. And so I wanted the movie hoping that this will be Blomkamp's return to great sci-fi. You watch it, the movie starts off like every other Blomkamp movie. 
with Anderson Cooper <laughs> or, you know, or like, you know, like fake news coverage of what you're, you were about to watch. And then the movie goes on for there, from there. And when the movie was over, I realized that I absolutely hated the movie. And I am proud to say that the movie is slightly less shitty now than it was when I saw it last time. And that is a little disheartening because this movie should have been good, and it's not. I think what happens during the last five minutes of the movie should have happened earlier on in the movie. Because they marketed this movie early, uh, you know, early on that it was going to be like more of a drama. And really it's kind of a full-fledged action movie for the most part. And some of the action is, is alright. As exciting as random explosions and gunshots are. But it's all shot well. You know, the movie is shot well. The production itself, uh, like the scenery, the production design, is well done. And it just so happens that Blomkamp wrote the script. He might be good behind the camera, but he is not good in the pre-production at all with, with, with the writing. That's what he lacks in. And that's why I'm afraid for the next Aliens movie, because he's apparently scripting the movie. I think this also goes to prove how important it is to have a good uh, production team behind you. With District 9, people often forget that one of its main producers was Peter Jackson. And I'm pretty sure Peter Jackson brought in some of his people to work on that movie, which helped make the movie the great movie that it was. Or that that is, I guess. Now with Elysium and this movie, he doesn't have Peter Jackson behind him. And look what happened. It's missing that certain element, that certain human element, uh, emotional element that the, his first movie had, most definitely had. And you can feel him striving for that, but he never comes close to reaching it. In fact, it comes across as forced emotion. And nothing is worse than for being force-fed feelings and emotion. Again, what happens at the during the last five minutes of the movie should have happened earlier on and continued with that storyline. I think you would have had a better movie. The biggest flaw of the movie, other than Di Antwood playing themselves in the movie, which I think is fucking stupid, because it, it's like if we were making a movie, if we were making this movie and we did, we put Aerosmith in this movie. Well, Aerosmith is playing Aerosmith, but they're not singers, they're gangsters. I... I mean, their memorabilia, their band memorabilia is in this movie. It just doesn't make sense. So, with saying that, in closing, you are constantly being being taken out of the moment, out of every scene of this movie you are being brought out of throughout the entire movie. And so, you are unable to get completely involved with the action, with the characters, with the moments. So, you don't give a shit about anything. And I left the theater both times displeased and quite sad because this movie could have been something awesome. And it wasn't. Uh, Matt, you gave this movie 1.5. I'll give this one... I'm going to have to give this one 1.25. Alrighty then. Okay, so that takes care of that. Next week's movies are going to be The Guest, Calvary, and It Happened One Night. Not, now, remember, that not Cavalry. 
Okay, not cavalry where you're on mounted horseback charging at things. Calvary, as in where Christ was crucified. Uh, and then it happened one night, which is uh, a kind of a throwback to our roots. We haven't done a classic movie in a really long time, so we're going back to the classic movie roots there. So with it happened one night. Um, and I do believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music, as always, of you that you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. The exception to which, of course, is our discussions with Matt and Tim music, which is brought to us from MuseOpen.org. And until... <clears throat> Let's see here. What else do we got? Oh, yeah. Before I jump to the end, what about us? Us, yeah, we're still the SLS cast. You can go to slscast.com and find us there. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nittwit12345. You can follow Tim on Twitter too if you want to go out there and find him. And then, of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So now that we're here for real this time, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Greta Garbo, I get to say this. I never said I want to be alone. I only said I want to be left alone. There is all the difference. Take care, guys, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.